1 Peter chapter 1. Last week we covered verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, which is really the formal introduction. And the next unit of thought is verses 3 through 12. It's sort of a preface, we said, to the main body of Peter's letter. And uh, in this preface, verses 3 through 12, Peter is going to give us a beautiful foundation for new life in Christ. So I want us to see that. If, if the primary purpose of 1 Peter is found in 1 Peter 5, 12, which is to stand firm in the grace of God, the true grace of God, then we could say these verses are giving us a theological footing in which to stand, on which to stand, in which to plant our feet firm. So let's begin by examining this important foundation. Why don't we stand together out of respect for the reading of the Word of God. And let's read our text, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the reading of God's inerrant word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our merciful Father, we... Thank you, for your name is great. There is nothing that we could add to you, no grander that could ever make you greater than you are. Your mercy is from everlasting to everlasting, and yet we find that your mercies are new to us every morning. Lord, we ask this morning for the power of your Holy Spirit. We are unable to hear and respond to your word as we ought. Uh, we ask that you would give your servant grace and ability to speak clearly, give power and conviction. Lord, help us to come from the walls of this place filled and full of blessing to you, for your goodness is so great to us. We pray if there be anybody in our midst who doesn't know Jesus in a personal, eternal way, that today would be a day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. In the poor town... Poor town you surely never heard of in the small country of Moldova, which is one of the poorest countries in all of Europe. There lived a student named Sude, uh, Sergei Sude, who was struggling to pay his way through college. And one day, this young man received a knock on his door from agents sent to inform him of his uncle's passing. Now, this was unusual because Sergei had never really known his uncle. He'd only met his uncle once, ten years ago. But apparently, the nephew had made such an impression on his uncle that the man ended up willing him his entire estate. <laughs> now get this. An inheritance of 950 million euros. That's over a billion dollars. If you ever have an uncle like that, you know, let me know. But that... This is a very unusual situation. Very rare, very seldom in history does a pauper ever become a prince overnight. And yet here, a poor student in a poor country, in a poor village, suddenly, instantly, 
is made so incredibly rich by an incredibly unforeseen inheritance. But far greater than all the wealth a man could accumulate in this whole world, we are told, is the eternal redemption, the glorious salvation that God's people have in Jesus Christ. Peter has just given his readers great cause for rejoicing. We saw that last week. They are God's chosen. They're God's chosen people, chosen on the basis of the Father's foreknowledge by the power of the Spirit's sanctifying work for the purpose of covenant obedience to the Son. His readers are truly blessed. And so it's at this point, no wonder that the apostle transitions into praise. And Peter begins verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in what sense? Can we, as the people of God, bless God? We know how he can bless us. But how, how is it we could bless God? Obviously, we can't bless God in the same way he blesses us. We can't add anything to him. He is perfect. You can't perfect perfection. We can't make God any greater than he is. But whenever scripture speaks of people blessing God, it's talking about us admiring him for who he is. It's talking about us extolling him and honoring him treating him as who he is that is how we can bless the lord and that's where peter is peter's simply overwhelmed he's amazed at god's glorious salvation it's so incredible what god has given his people and christian when is the last time that you were amazed at god's salvation has god saved you have you been born again like we just sang about, are you one of God's children? When is the last time that thought absolutely gripped and overwhelmed you so that you bless the Lord? Peter's so overwhelmed, he does what any one of us should do when we're overwhelmed with the Lord's blessings. He blesses the Lord. And that is the timeless truth of these three verses. Our text tells us it's time we blessed the Lord for his amazing salvation. And, in, and this morning's text gives us three blessings for which we must bless our God. First, we must bless God for his deliverance. We must bless God for his deliverance, his salvation. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Now, stop right there. This, this uh, phrase, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, tells us, again, that God, the Father, he's, again, the author, the architect of our salvation. But it gives us two relationships that the Father has to the Son. And, and these two relationships, they raise two questions for us. First, in what respect is God a father to Jesus? That's a good question. Well, Jesus is not called the Son because he was created by the Father. There was never a time in history where Jesus didn't exist. Hebrews 13, 7 says Jesus is eternal. He's everlasting. Nor is Jesus called the Son with respect to his inferiority. How do we know that? Because Jesus, Philippians 2, 6 tells us, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In fact, Jesus himself claimed in John 10, 30, equality with the Father. So in what sense is Jesus a son? Well, Jesus' sonship to the Father actually indicates his true deity. Jesus' sonship with the Father indicates he is of one and the same essence 
with God the Father. He is sharing one essence with God as God. The Father is not any more God than the Son. The Son is not any more God than the Father. But we do observe an order in the Godhead, in the Trinity. The Father plans and directs while the Son obeys and follows. So Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we also have to ask here, how could it be that the Father is also the God of Jesus? Does that imply Jesus is not God? Well, when Jesus was on earth, just understand this, he took upon himself human flesh. And he showed us how a human being should live. And did you know this? I know this is going to come as news to you. When Jesus was on earth, he wasn't an atheist. He believed in God. He worshipped God. And so the Father is, in the sense of Jesus' humanity, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father is the God of Jesus in terms of Jesus' incarnate humanity, and he's the Father of Jesus in terms of Jesus' eternal deity. All right. Now we have to ask, looking at this first portion of verse 3, how is God's deliverance a blessing to us? Well, three ways. First of all, Peter tells us it is a merciful deliverance for which we should bless God. The Father saves us according to his great mercy. And mercy is God not giving you what you do deserve. Mercy is God sparing us the justice of his divine wrath that our sin deserves. Listen to Titus 3, 3. For we also, this Paul's talking about Christians, all right? For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, But when the kindness of our God and Savior uh, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Did you hear that? God doesn't save good people based on their goodness. He saves sinners based on his mercy. Don't miss that. According to the Bible, God doesn't save good people according to their goodness. He saves sinners, bad people, according to his goodness, his mercy. And when you realize how sinful you are, you will realize how great is God's mercy towards you. Psalm 103.10, God has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness or his mercy toward them that fear him. Last week I mentioned some Christians will claim, well, when God chose his people, he simply chose them because he foreknew what they would do. He chose them on their performance. He just knew what they would, that they would perform well, better than others. But we saw from other scriptures that's absolutely not what the Bible teaches about God's foreknowledge. What God foreknows is what God himself has foreordained. He's God. But here also, Peter's saying in verse 3, the Father's salvation of his people was according to what? His great mercy. Not our works, not our sensibility, not anything in us to commend us to God, but something wonderful in God himself. And it's called mercy, great mercy. So we ought to bless God because our salvation is a merciful salvation. It's a merciful deliverance and it is a miraculous deliverance you couldn't do it it takes god 
It's a miraculous deliverance. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father, who according to his great mercy has what? Caused us to be born again. Now this new birth imagery that we see elsewhere in scripture gives us two very important truths about our salvation. First, God and God alone can bring about this deliverance. I mean, last I checked, no one congratulates themselves for being born. <laughs> right? Why? Because we had absolutely nothing to do with our own birth. You didn't choose where you'd be born. You probably didn't help at all. You probably made things very difficult. And that is why God uses this birth analogy. He uses this birth imagery to describe our salvation. He says, he caused us to be born again. Why? Because we can no more give ourselves spiritual life than we can give ourselves physical life. It takes God to bring a sinner into his kingdom. God and God alone. Jesus, uh, or John, <clears throat> described this new birth imagery in John 1.13. He says, God's true people are those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that is why in the Bible, theologians will often refer to salvation as a monergistic work. Monergism. That's a combination of two Greek words. Mono, one, and energeo, energy or work. It is one work. Salvation, your salvation is one work. It is the work of God. Only God, the Father, can cause us to be born again. But this new birth imagery also indicates that this deliverance of God involves a complete change of nature. A complete change of nature within those God saves. God's not in the business of merely remodeling sinners. He's not out to just do an extreme makeover of your life. God's in the business of regenerating dead sinners, giving new life. I mean, he says causing us to be born again, a new birth that begins a new life. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. A new creation. How, in what other language can we emphasize? How else can we emphasize? This is a complete change of nature. To Nicodemus, the most piously disposed of Religious people in his time, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you won't even see the kingdom of God. You won't even see the gates of heaven. This man, morally speaking, towered head and shoulder above everyone, and yet Jesus could doubly assure him, if you are not born of the Spirit, you will not see heaven. Wow. Why? I mean, Nicodemus, if there was anything a religious person could do, Nicodemus had done it. But you see, it's not about us cleaning up our act, making ourselves measure up to God. We can't. We need an entire change of nature. And that, and nothing less than that, is what this salvation is. The fact God is causing us to be born again indicates salvation is first the supernatural work of God. It's the miracle of God. It's 100% his miracle. We contribute to this miracle. How much? Zero. And this miracle involves a supernatural change of our nature. It's a miracle that changes us from the inside out. Wow. <laughs> it's not about being a Christian isn't putting on your Sunday best and coming to church and singing praises. It is the Spirit of God making you alive in Christ. 
wow, Peter blesses God for his deliverance because it is merciful and because it is miraculous and because it is a most meaningful deliverance. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to, and the preposition here indicates a result of God's work, born again to a living hope. Our salvation is most meaningful because it brings us to a living hope. It brings us a living hope. Now, when we speak of hope, we usually have in mind this idea that we want something to happen, right? So many of us, I know, we're hoping that the Rangers would make it to the Stanley Cup. And it, there was uncertainty in that hope to begin with, and it was a hope that was not fulfilled. But when the New Testament talks about hope, this concept of Christian hope, it has three things in mind. The first reality is that of a future expectation. And I mean, that's a given. Of course, to have hope is to have some kind of expectation of something to happen in the future. But for the Christian, hope also involves confident trust, confident expectation. Hope in the biblical sense of the term is a blessed assurance of what it is you're hoping for. Paul would say in Romans 5, 5, hope does not disappoint. Not this kind of Christian hope. It will not be disappointed. Peter's saying, we have a hope that will not be disappointed. But finally, for the Christian, hope involves patient endurance. Now, this is important. Also pregnant in this term hope is the, the, the idea of what this hope does in those who are hoping. The idea of what hope does for the hopeful. When we're talking about hope in the biblical sense, we're talking about what it is that keeps God's people going. Hope is what causes God's people to endure through tribulation and difficulty and to continue trusting God. That's hope. But notice Peter mentions a living hope. Did you catch that? We sang about that recently. We are born again to a living hope. Anyone desiring life has hope. Come on. People who want to live they do so by right of some hope. They are hoping for something, and that is why they cling to life. Even a godless man like Karl Marx lived by hope. He preached a hope to people. But Karl Marx's hope, hope of an atheist paradise on earth without God, that's not a living hope. That is still a hope that deludes millions to this day, but it is a godless hope. It is what the Bible would teach us is a hope that is doomed to perish. Job chapter 8 mentions how that just as a plant cannot live without water, but will soon die in the same way. Hope that is not rooted in God is not a living hope. It is doomed to perish. Job 8.13, so are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless will perish. What a stark contrast. To the living hope that is found in Christ is the hope of the godless that perish. Now, on what basis can the Christian's hope be said to be living? Peter says, according to his great mercy, God the Father has caused us to be born again to a living hope through. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter says we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Meaning, we have a living hope because we have a living Savior. Our hope lives because He lives. You know, this week I read a sad Facebook post by a minister who believes, apparently, that he can be a Christian without believing in Jesus' resurrection. And why not, right? In, in today's culture, when you can say truth is simply whatever I want it to be, when you can make of the truth, you can make of Jesus whatever you want, sure, you could say, I don't believe in Jesus' resurrection, it's all poetry to me. But in the first century, the Apostle Paul rebuked such nonsense. He said, this is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. That means worthless. And he says, and your faith is also vain. Now that's interesting to me because Paul was clearly not a subjectivist. He was clearly not a relativist who believed in this idea that truth is whatever you want it to be. No, Paul was clearly a Christian who had a Christian conception of truth. And so he doesn't say... I believe in the resurrection of Christ, but if you don't want to, that's fine. You can still have hope. He says, if Jesus didn't rise, then not only is my faith in vain, but your faith is in vain too. Wow. And he goes on to say in verse 17, if Christ, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, meaning there is no resurrection, we are of all men most to be pitied. You can't play around with this. Paul is saying that the resurrection of Jesus Christ lies at the heart and center of the gospel. Without Jesus' bodily resurrection, there's no more hope to be had in Christianity than not to be had in Christianity. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's no more hope to be found in Jesus than outside of Jesus. Do you understand? But for Christians, our hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yes, this hope makes all the difference in the world. It's the difference between eternal triumph and defeat, or between eternal joy and despair. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 22 tells us Jesus' resurrection means our resurrection. His life means our life. So Peter blesses God because his deliverance, merciful, miraculous, meaningful, as it is. But in verse 4, Peter expands on this hope now of our salvation by sharing what awaits us in heaven. And this is the, uh, a second blessing for which we must bless our God. Bless God for his deliverance. Bless God for his inheritance. Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. He's talking about now because of our salvation, we are saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Peter's blessing God for what he stored up for his people. And so I just have to say this, that if you are not interested in hearing what God has in store for his people, that could mean one of two things. It could mean that you don't have any part in that inheritance, and maybe that's why it doesn't interest you at all. Or perhaps... You are one of the children of God, but you're, you're so full of the things of this world. You're so, you've set your affections on the things of this life. You're not really interested. And if that's you, you need to understand, this is the glory that awaits God's people. There isn't a Christian in this room that should be disinterested in what Peter has to say here. How is God's inheritance 
a blessing for us? Well, first of all, Peter makes it plain in verse 4 that it is superior to anything in this life. During Jesus' earthly ministry, just remember the background of, uh, of Peter's interaction with Jesus. And during Jesus' earthly ministry, Peter once saw Jesus confronted by a rich young ruler who returned down the glories of heaven and Jesus Christ because he didn't want to give up his own earthly inheritance. And Peter, coming to Jesus, scratching his head, he said, Well, behold, Jesus, we've left all and followed you. What then will there be for us? Well, that's a valid question. Jesus said to him in Matthew 19, 28, uh, and, and onward, he says, Everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus actually tells his disciples, he promises them a 100-fold blessing. Which obviously is an expression of saying, what I will give to you is far superior than anything this world can give to you. I believe that this is the inheritance Peter has in mind here as he writes to the people of God. And so how is this inheritance superior to anything in this life? Peter says three things. First of all, this inheritance is imperishable. And he's using the same word that Paul used in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, where he says everyone who competes in the games, the Olympic or Isthmian games, exercises self-control in all things. They do it then to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Paul is comparing the Christian life as a race where we are striving for the prize at the end of life, and he's comparing that to like an Olympic runner who's putting himself under discipline so that he can win the prize. But their prize is perishable. Ours is imperishable. It is eternal. That's the idea. So Peter's saying this inheritance is far superior than anything this world can offer you because it's eternal. It's eternal what God will give to his people. But he also says, and it is undefiled. You know, when God gave the nation of Israel an inheritance, this inheritance was said to be defiled. It wasn't defiled at when God gave it to them, but they defiled it. They defiled it by their sin, by their idolatry by living according to all the abominations of the pagans around them. So that in Jeremiah 2.7, for instance, God would say to his people, I brought you into this fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things, but you came and defiled my land and my inheritance you made an abomination. Well, here's the good news. The inheritance that God has for his people is undefiled and it is undefilable, if that's a word. It means your inheritance is not defiled, and it cannot be defiled. It's what God has in store for his people. But Peter adds another thing. He says, and it will not fade away. Do you see that? Meaning, it is unfading in beauty. Now, you know how this is. I mean, you can't even wear the same clothes for too long because it passes out of style, right? Beauty fades all around us. Every spring, the flowers grow up. This is a beautiful time of year. Well, what's going to happen? Even by the summer, a lot of these flowers will be wilted. Then comes the fall, and the glory of the flower fades. Just like Peter will say in 1 Peter 1.24 from Isaiah, how that all flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of grass, and the grass withers, and the flower falls off. And what a depressing thought this is. 
for those who only are holding on, clutching desperately onto the beauty of this transient, passing existence. Boy, if that is your hope, if that's all you have to live for is the beauty of this passing temporal life, that is sad. Because it will be gone before you know it, before you can even enjoy it. So anything someone gives to you in this world will perish. It will fade in its glory, in its beauty. But you see the glory and beauty of what God is promising for his people is that which is eternal. It will not pass away. So it is superior to anything in this life. But to this, Peter adds, the end of verse 4, that it is reserved in heaven for you. This is an inheritance, he's saying, that can't be taken away because it's got your name on it and God's holding it for you. Now, that's important because Christianity Today reported just from last year that 124,000 Christians were forcibly displaced from their home because of their faith. Many of those became refugees. Christians all around are being stripped of their possessions, stripped of their inheritance because of their faith in Christ. I have no doubt that some of Peter's readers, as part of the persecution they are suffering at this time in the first century, was that some of their non-Christian family said, you're not going to receive the inheritance if you're going to behave that way. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you have no inheritance with us. But Peter now writes some very reassuring words. He says, hey, here's some good news. No one can take this from you. No one can take this inheritance from you. There's a, a story heard. Uh, this elderly man once had the following dream. As a believer, he opened his eyes in heaven. In dreams, we usually do things like that. And he found himself standing before the largest choir he'd ever seen. And the choir was singing the most beautiful music. And so all he could think about was he just had to join that choir. He wanted to join in the singing. And he noticed that there was one seat up there. And so he thought, if I can just make my way up to that seat... I, I can join the choir. So he begins making his way toward that seat. But as he's climbing and he's climbing row after row, he, he was worried, I hope that seat's still there. I hope that seat's there. there. And finally, he arrived and there looked upon the chair to see it was still open. He was so relieved. But when he looked at the chair, he noticed that inscribed on it, it said, reserved in heaven and it had his name on it. It had his name. That chair was open because he was meant to occupy it. And when God tells you that there is an inheritance reserved in heaven for you, he's saying there are glories that I have that are for you, not for anyone else. Because I have a plan for your life. Something that no one else can give you. It is imperishable. It is undefiled. And it is unfading in beauty. This is the beauty that God has for his people. Whatever in this world excites you, if you're a Christian, Peter would want you to know it cannot compare to what Christ has in store for you. Maybe you're more excited about the glories of this life than you are about the life to come. Hey, just admit it, right? Maybe you'd say, I'm more interested in movies. I'm more interested in sports. I'm more interested in some hobby. I'm more interested in some relationship in this life than I am in my relationship with Jesus Christ. But if that's you, Christian, God would want to call you to your senses. In the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant 
by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Half-hearted creatures. How could we settle for a bowl of soup when God wants to give you a glorious internal inheritance? God has so much more in store for you than anything this world could ever offer you. And that is why Paul prayed for Christians living in Ephesus in Ephesians 1.18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Paul was praying, oh, that God's people would just know that they would see as if with eyes in their heart, that they would see with their desires what it is God has in store for them. If you realize the sort of deliverance and inheritance you have in Jesus Christ, you will bless the Lord for being so good to you. But how is it we can be certain we will actually receive this inheritance from God? Peter goes on to explain how you can be certain you will make it there. How you can be certain you will also receive this inheritance from the Lord, and it's a third blessing from our text for which we must bless our God. Bless God for his deliverance. Bless God for his inheritance. But verse 5, bless God for his omnipotence. Verse 5, who, speaking of those now for which this inheritance is reserved in heaven, who are preserved by the power of God through salvation, through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How is God's omnipotence a blessing for us? Omnipotence, by the way, means all power. All power. God is all powerful. How is his omnipotence a blessing for us? Well, the first thing we see is that his omnipotent power protects us. It protects us. If I was to ask you this morning, are you protected? Well, you might, probably in our culture, you would say protected what? What are you selling, right? Are you selling... Uh, home defense systems or identity theft protection a lot we find that but are you protected christian are you protected when peter goes on to describe this protection he describes it as by the power of god and for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time he's talking about god's protection of his people to make it sure that they arrive where they presently are now safely in his eternal kingdom That's an important protection. That's an important kind of insurance, right, that we all need. That's important coverage. And his omnipotent power then protects us for salvation. And this protection is both guarding from escape and guarding from attacks. Now, don't miss this. When God guards his sheep, his flock, his people, he guards them from attacks without and from escape from within. One blessing of God's omnipotence is that nothing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from God's hand. That's Jesus' point in John 10, uh, 27 through 29. God keeps his sheep. But equally important is the fact that we ourselves cannot escape God's salvation. I hope you're listening to me because it's very important. We can't... uh, Look, believe me, if we were at all able... To escape the saving grace of God, we would. (laughs) If we could find a way out of the sheepfold of God's salvation, God's people would do it. In fact, anyone who didn't give away their salvation would be able to say in heaven one day, yeah, Jesus saved me, but it was I who kept myself saved. You see how, how foolish, how meritorious that is? 
How silly, how ridiculous to think that God saves us, oh yeah, by grace, but then we have to keep ourselves saved by works. That's not the way it works. We do work out our salvation, but we work it out because it is both God who wills in us and through us to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So it's, the scriptures teach that it's grace that saves us and it's grace that keeps us. God brings his people into his fold by faith or by grace. And that is what the shepherd does. But he keeps his sheep in the fold by his same protective grace. But notice this. Peter says lastly that his omnipotent power protects us through faith. That means God not only ordains the end result of our protection, but also the means of our protection. He's or, and he's ordained that you would be protected through faith. Through faith. In other words, we can't know who it is that's covered under this protection, right? We can't, because we can't go into the future and see this person entering into the kingdom of God. We can't do that. But we can look at their faith. And Peter says, that is, this, that is the sign of God's protection. In fact, just think about it this way. I'll give you an negative example. We hear of brothers and sisters, people, I should say, who we counted brothers or sisters at one time, who renounced the faith. They no longer believe in Jesus Christ. What do we do with that? Did God suddenly lose them? Did they suddenly escape from the fold of God? What's going on there? Well, whenever we hear that, we should call to mind the words of 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. That it might be made known that they are not all of us. John says, if they were of us, they would have remained with us. God's true people will continue because he preserves them, what? Through faith. Somebody falls away from the Christian faith. God didn't keep them. You're right. He didn't keep them through faith. They weren't a true believer. They were never one of his people. They're one of those that Jesus describes in his parable of the sower. But perhaps you'd say, well, pastor, but as I'm listening to you, I believe the gospel, but I fear that my faith will fail. I fear that I may fall away. And if that's you, God's word to you is this. Don't let fear paralyze you but run, run, lay aside every encumbrance and the weight, the sin that so easily entangles you, and run, run with endurance the race that is set before you. This is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. I'm saying if it was just our faith, yes, it would fail. But what the scriptures teach is it's not our faith, it's his faith. Jesus is the one who begins our faith, and the Jesus who begins our faith is the Jesus who completes our faith. Because Jesus finishes what he starts, Philippians 1.6. Bless God for his omnipotence because our salvation from beginning to end rests upon his omnipotent power, and that's good news. That's good news if you trust God, right? You don't trust God, where else are you going to find hope? Where else are you going to find security? Bless the Lord for his deliverance, his inheritance, and omnipotence. If you're one of the people of God this morning, it's time that you bless the Lord for his amazing salvation. You know, a couple years ago, I heard this story uh, of where a 22-year-old son received a BMW from his parents, but then pushed it into a river because it wasn't a Jaguar. When interviewed, the boy's father said, I, I wanted to give my son a birthday present. We could only afford to give him a BMW, while he kept on insisting that he'd be given a Jaguar. He said the vehicle was too small, but we thought he will be okay. 
We never imagined he would do anything like this. Of course not. When we hear a story like that, we are aghast at that sort of ungratefulness. That is just the height of just arrogance and ingratitude. And yet, is there any greater ingratitude possible than a child of God who is not overflowing with gratefulness to God for his incredible salvation? Do you bless the Lord for his salvation? If you're lacking in gratitude, brothers and sisters, to the Heavenly Father just this morning, just consider the difference that your salvation makes. It's God's salvation of you makes. Consider the prospect of dying without God's mercy. Are you thankful that God judged Jesus in your place? Are you thankful for that this morning? So that you don't have to suffer the wrath of God? Are you, are you blessing him for having mercy on your soul? Are you considering the hopeless prospect of trying to regenerate yourself? You couldn't bring yourself into eternal life. God has to make you alive. Do you bless the Lord for doing what you possibly could not? Consider the power of God that preserves your salvation. You can never keep yourself saved. It's God who keeps you, but it's God who will keep you. Do you bless the Lord for his power that keeps you? Let's not be guilty of undervaluing what is the greatest gift and joy and hope and inheritance that we could possibly be given. It's the Father's gift of salvation. And we might ask, well, how, how can I bless the Lord? How can I bless the Lord? You can do that by giving him, give him your time. Give him some time, especially today on this Lord's Day. Give him your attention by prayer and, and opening the scriptures and giving him your admiration and praise as you see him revealed therein. And ultimately, giving him your worship. We can bless the Lord by honoring him with our lives, by honoring him in our lives as God above all. So if there's anyone here without Christ, I would just ask to please consider the hopelessness of life without Jesus. You know, uh, those without Christ, they have no joyous future to await them. They have only outer darkness and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, Jesus would say. Those without Christ have nothing in which they may find true eternal security, but even their greatest hope that they assume they have will break beneath their weight. It will give way to eternal destruction. If that's you, and you say, I don't know, I'm one of God's true children. If you say, I believe I'm lost. (laughs) Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. You need to turn to him. So if that's you, please come to see me. See a brother or sister here, but don't leave uh, fearing for your soul when God is offering you hope and peace in Christ. Let's pray.